Hello and welcome to a special edition of the FT Advisor podcast where we continue our series looking into how the finance profession will be changed by the coronavirus pandemic. In this edition we're going to look at the consolidation market. Mergers and acquisitions have been a constant feature of the advice profession for years. Valuations have been high and some of the biggest firms have been getting bigger with national advisors extending their coverage across the UK. But will this continue as the economy returns to normal after lockdown? Can it return to normal? With me to discuss this are Lee Hartley, Chief Executive of Fairstone, and Paul Morris, Group Corporate Director at Succession Wealth. Welcome both. So Lee, let's start with you. Will the pace of consolidation continue through and after the lockdown ends? Uh, I think so, yes, broadly speaking. Um, I, I don't see any reason for consolidation to take a backward step. Um, I think ostensibly that relies upon acquirers having continuity of capital. Um, and really the, the long-term consumer dynamics uh, are exactly the same. Uh, and, and they're the dynamics that underpin the reasons why people want to acquire businesses in the wealth management space. So you're looking at demand still outstripping supply, um, huge transfer of intergenerational wealth coming in the next few decades, uh, around a trillion pounds of liquid investable assets held by UK consumers, particularly those in the 50 to 70 age bracket. And we have an aging population, so therefore the the need for retirement advice is growing and becoming ever greater. So all of those things together, um, I, I don't see any reason for the pace of consolidation to slow down. Temporarily, maybe, and that could just be down to logistics, you know, the the very real activity of due diligence, site visit, all that kind of stuff. Um, but in broad terms, no, I think we're, uh, we're full steam ahead. Paul, do you go? Uh, yeah, mostly. I, I think um, I'd probably much more distinctively separate um, the here and now to life after lockdown. I think uh, as I observe it and as I hear it, the here and now is very, very different, much slower. I think there are both demand and supply reasons for that. So um, obviously, as Lee said, you know, due diligence is hard to conduct now, um, which is inevitably going to put a, a break in some ways on some aspects of processes involved in M&A. But I think, um, you know, it would be wrong not to say there are fewer acquirers. I can see and hear that there are people pulling out or putting on pause their acquisition program or their approaches to the market. Um, I know Lee's not in that bracket and nor are we very much. We're going the other way, actually. But um, I think, therefore, there is inevitability of slowdown just because there are fewer people asking if uh, if a firm is for sale and at what price. Um, but that is a factor of a number of different things. Probably on the on the buyer side, um, availability of capital and and kind of twitchy investor or funders um, are clearly meaning that uh, those people who have some liquidity that they can spend on businesses are going to be a bit more picky, and that's assuming they can make expenditure on companies. But similarly, I think uh, firms to who are thinking of or were in the process of selling uh, are seeing life a bit different as well because they're not sure what acquirers are going to do around giving what would have hitherto been perceived as fair value to them and until acquirers make clear uh, what their offers contain that effectively allows them to pull through value now or in the future linked on a return to whatever the markets might become uh, you're going to find a bit of slowdown quite a lot of slowdown would be my perception uh, on both the demand and supply side but um 
people who, in my view who are investing well in relationships that were well built with potential firms to buy and or brokers and or uh, kind of just the market more generally um, are pulling through deals that I think will create quite a big acceleration uh, once lockdown allows more normal due diligence and market valuations to return. So I, I think there's a slowdown now, but it's really just a build up of what will be a release of uh, businesses into the market. Also, in my own conversations with firms, if I've heard um, I should have sold a few years ago or this is the straw that breaks the camel's back for people, then uh, fundamentally, I think that's going to bring quite a lot more firms to the market once the whole thing frees up a bit. And valuations have been quite high for a while now. Is this going to have any impact on those valuations, uh, both during this current period and immediately after it. Um, Lee, back to you. I think that is a very different answer depending upon whether you're a public or a private business. Um, so short term, if you're a public acquirer, you may have to reduce your valuation multiples. Um, you can't afford to impair your earnings per share. Uh, you need to preserve shareholder value. And if the market is off by 20% plus, which is uh, clearly impacting different sectors in different ways. But, you know, we you are seeing um, some of the public consolidators uh, with their valuations being hit by 30% or more. They have to pass that through to um, their valuations, uh, at least in the short term. I think if you're a private business, uh, as we are, as succession are, I think you have far more discretion to take a longer term view. Um, if you take the long term view, yeah. I don't see any reasons why short term impact on trading should have a permanent impact upon valuations. So if this is a cycle, um, no real reason to alter the capital structure of a deal and fundamentally reduce multiples. Good businesses are still good businesses. But that also depends upon the nature of the capital that acquirers have to deploy. Um, sometimes that capital comes with conditions. Um, and, you know, the current market impact may affect the ability of acquirers to actually deploy capital. So I, I think it, there's different facets to that, um, to that question. For ourselves, it's a definite no. Um, we're not changing our valuation methodology. We're not changing our capital structure. Um, but for others, that might, that might be a very, very different answer. What do you think, Paul? Uh, I think good and growing businesses, uh, well-led with a strong client bank, strong client proposition, uh, good uh, staff complement, uh, great planners are always going to command a good price. And I think uh, good is always good and good always attracts the right valuations. So um, for those businesses, I, I don't see anything other than a competitive marketplace uh, to sell into. And rightly, they get full and fair value for it. I think um, if we're honest, there are a number of other businesses who probably coming to different points of view about why they are trying to or wishing to continue or not as the case may be to trade in their own right. And maybe there will be opportunities to um, look at them and try and find a different way of valuing in order particularly to pay value early where maybe um, a seller's trying to exit. It's not generally the model we deploy, but I can see and hear that probably there are some people playing in that space. Um, but I think for good businesses, doing the right thing in the right way with great clients and a very strong proposition, um, 
that they shouldn't have anything to fear on valuations. Certainly, as Lee said, we're in the same boat where we're not changing our base view of how we value a business, with one exception, actually, where we are um, changing the way we value businesses in order to allow them not to suffer a dip in underlying valuation because the market's dipped. So uh, we've uh, put quite a bit of effort into allowing a, a seller to ride the market back up and beyond, which we weren't necessarily doing in quite the same way before, um, because that, that again rewards businesses that are both strong underlying, but also continuing to have a growth orientation and doesn't penalize them just because something outside of their own control in the markets uh, has, has landed on all of our laps. So um, I think there's an upside opportunity in valuations. Uh, it, my view is it's, uh, it's an opportunity not to be so fixed and rigid in many ways, as I think most acquirers often can be with the way they look at a firm in the here and now and try and value it now, but actually can take some 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 more long term, mid to long term views and share that upside in a different and more creative way. Lee, have you put any thought into um, valuing firms through this period so that they're not affected? Um, almost exactly. Um, I think it's been almost exactly the same as what Paul has said. So what we're concerned about is um, sellers being negatively impacted because uh, trading uh, within the earnout period of a deal may be compromised. So we have put in place a mechanism where sellers can effectively take a free pass uh, and defer uh, the periods over which earnout is calculated into more positive trading territory. Uh, what we don't want is any seller to be permanently hit uh, or, or take any kind of reduction in uh, their sale, re sale realization uh, because of short-term impact. So it, it sounds as if uh, Paul and ourselves have been thinking along the same lines there to make sure that there's that flexibility within the capital structure, within the deal structure, to make sure that any interim impact that a firm may have doesn't result in a permanent, in a permanent reduction in value. Uh, and I think they're just sensible things. Clearly, um, good businesses. Um, with more robust revenues, may not see that as advantageously, uh, but it's a nice thing to have as a safety net to make sure that people can focus on the long term uh, and look at deals in a balanced way rather than purely focusing upon the short term. And um, Paul, does this change the assessment of what a good company is to buy? Um, for example, a lot of um, companies have been focusing on desperately trying to get some technology up and running so that they can have video calls with their clients. Uh, are you, when you come out of this, are you going to be looking for firms which have got that sort of running technology running through it like a stick of rock rather than just a bolt-on? Is that going to be a bigger consideration for you, for example? Or okay. something else? I mean, that, yeah, it's probably something else, actually. I think um, as I said earlier, you know, good businesses ultimately are, are, are amalgams of great clients with a strong proposition underpinning them and great staff and the assets follow. And uh, I don't think, you know, the, the environment we're all operating in right now changes, therefore, the core view of what a good business is. But there have always been interesting businesses on the market who perhaps speak to a particular sector in the market or a segment and, and have a particularly interesting aspect to their proposition. Uh, that I think have commanded a different way of attracting attention from the buyer community, but also uh, having a premium on their price. I don't think, therefore, at the core, that changes at all. However, 
I, I do think um, probably according to who you as a seller are thinking of selling into uh, does affect the answer to the technology-led and operational processes-led aspect of the question you asked. We, we run um, our own uh, software and our own uh, operating infrastructure. Funnily enough, I've just been looking at our staff survey from our 600 people and 85% have said that they are, well, happy or very happy with the way we have allowed them to work from home in a flexible environment and how they're feeling about working here. And for me, that means we've got a safe landing place into our technology and operational environment for anyone we buy. And therefore, whether someone's found it hard or easy to transition operationally right now doesn't really affect uh, the way we're looking at a business uh, with a view to acquiring it. However, um, I think it would be wrong not to say also that if a business has a, a particularly, for example, a strong digital offering, um, that you could see some opportunity to scale um, and or there were proof points that the clients had particularly adapted well to a more flexible way of working in their relationship with the planner, then I think those are going to be value additive for a seller uh, because they're obviously going to prove to be an underpinning factor of what a firm looks like going forward, whether it's a very big one or a very small one. And Lee, what do you think? We have a slightly different view. Um... We're all hoping that the health impact of COVID is going to be managed and contained and um, relatively short term. Um, but I'm not a scientist, <laughs> so who can tell? I think the economic impact is going to be longer term. Uh, and I think there are going to be some new attributes and new behaviours that we're looking for within acquisition targets. Um, I think we may become more selective. And also, I think we're reshuffling the shopping list. What are we really looking for within, within a target that makes them uh, a good long-term investment? So, you know, within that new shopping list, you know, resilience, robustness of revenues, how well they've been able to adapt to a zero-touch environment, uh, client retention rates, all of that kind of stuff, which have always been there in the analysis of a, an acquisition target. But I think that those things that I've just mentioned, those operational things, are now taking a slightly higher order in the priority list. Um, and as important as profits and funds under management. So the the adaptability and the agility of firms uh, and the adaptability and the agility of the firm is a very good proxy for how well the client base receives that uh, new way of servicing. It is very much high up on our agenda and I think it will remain there until we have absolute clarity over what the long-term impact of COVID is going to be. So uh, we're looking through a slightly different lens now at the, uh, the wealth management community and you know that that generally shines a light on slightly younger businesses um those with a higher tech component uh slightly more forward thinking um uh, and yeah that, that's we, we've got a new set of criteria paul do you think there's any um anything that, that you're, you're doing to be honest no um I, I, I come back to what I said at the beginning, which is we've always taken a view, I suppose, that uh, really deals are about people selling to people. And 
And that means it's got to be right for the seller uh, in terms of the shareholders, the management, the, the key staff, um, uh, and ultimately the clients. And because those things being holding together are what allows value both to be retained and also uh, nourished and grown. Um, the operating environment, we, you know, I guess we all know that uh, buildings are going to be less popular to, for anyone to own as a piece of, uh, of real estate or assets uh, going forward. Uh, whether that's that or the technology they're, they're serving the client from or their staff are working from, we, we work around that, as I say, because we, we bring people into our, um, I guess, scaled operations. So in some ways, um, sellers who are going, you know, and I've spoken to a lot in the last few weeks, um, you know, I'm at the end of my tether with my ability to, you know, see my rent still have to be paid or my technology just about creaking or people struggling with, you know, how we work with paper in this environment. Uh, I think of perfect people to be talking to right now about um, buying them because it gives another logical reason to sell your business for uh, reasons that aren't to do with the detriment of a client or your staff. And uh, we don't take a view on that it's a bad or a good thing. It's just a fact of life because we are effectively scaling the infrastructure we've got to enable them to deliver what they've always done, which is great client and staff experience uh, in the place they do their business. So yeah, I'll probably take a slightly different view than Lee on that. So there are lots of different types of consolidator in the market. There's the provider-backed vertical integrator. There's the private equity-backed uh, one. There's the one that's uh, listed on the public market. Um, will they all make it through lockdown with the same acquisitive appetite? Will some of them fail to make it through at all? Uh, Lee, what do you think? I think it's inevitable that uh, different acquirers with different models will fare differently. Uh, I know that sounds like a fairly obvious statement, but ultimately those that will uh, come out of lockdown in the best shape will be those with the strongest balance sheets um, and those with uh, permanent capital available to them and not having to rely upon uh, ongoing fundraising to support their acquisition strategy. So that will apply to acquirers, um, or some acquirers in different proportions. I, I can't see how all of the consolidators in the marketplace will come out in great shape. I, I, I am expecting a consolidation of consolidators uh, in some respects. Uh, that isn't, that's something that we're definitely not looking at uh, we wouldn't be looking to acquire one of our peers, but I think there's definite logic for two or three of those to either merge or uh, one to acquire the other in order to create greater scale, greater stability, uh, that kind of thing. But it, it, it all comes down to adaptability. If, if you can adapt well, if you have that continuity of capital, then you should come out of the the main lockdown impact in fairly decent shape. But that is a very specific thing, and that cuts right to the heart of uh, operational agility uh, and how well businesses can morph into a, a new way of servicing clients. So uh, only time will tell, I suspect. Paul, what do you think? Of, uh, would you agree? Um, I, I'd probably be quite bold in some ways and say, no, I don't think everyone's going to come through lockdown or the period shortly thereafter. 
with anything like the same appetite or indeed in some cases with any appetite to keep acquiring um, for reasons of liquidity, for reasons of uh, provider capital, just not being whether it's shareholder or, or private equity money or, or other raised funds. Um, I just uh, there's going to be a tightening of criteria upon which people can draw down cash for anything, let alone acquisitions. So, no, I don't think uh, we will see the same uh, feeding frenzy, if one wants to use that phrase. Um, and probably for another reason, too, in my view, which is that um, there have been quite a raft of acquirers coming in who effectively aren't financial services companies at heart, i.e. they genuinely are consolidators basically using capital to build something from, if you like, from within rather than already being or, or building themselves to be a financial advice company in the first place. So, um, so I think we'll find that the companies that are running good financial planning businesses who are acquiring into those businesses, and I know Lee's like that, we definitely are, that's the way we've always built our model, uh, will find that they are much more able to be acquisitive ongoing than perhaps people who are effectively inviting sellers to come into a PE roll-up, for example, where fundamentally there's probably a drain on profitability and a question of, do I want to deploy my capital to keep buying into that model? Um, I guess the other strategy I see, I think is probably going to be a place for variation in terms of where hitherto hungry acquirers might not be able to stay there or wish to stay there. It's going to be the question of who's bought well. You know, um, I, I observe often in deals, what I think are frankly overpaid multiples for businesses based on profit generation that doesn't seem to have uh, substance in what I perceive in the numbers. and. I think sometimes you see that in some of the acquirers that are currently operating in the market where their inability to follow through with uh, deferred payments because businesses in their model were not generating enough profit to enable them to do so is going to allow some or mean some will catch a cold because they just won't have the capital to follow through what they've already bought or uh, what it takes to run an FS business properly in terms of the, the client and operational environment they have to sustain in order to remain and grow profitability. And I think you'll find some strategies that have been deployed hitherto, probably therefore will uh, find out who's bought well and who hasn't bought well, and that will justify or not whether people can keep stepping into an acquisition market in the same way they did do. So I, I, I don't see it staying the same. I think um, we'll see quite a division based on what people have spent their money on hitherto and also, frankly, what their offer to a seller is based on. And um, I, I think we'll see some very different worlds. I think Paul makes actually a very good point there. Um, you know, the analogy of when the tide goes out, you find out who's wearing underwear and who's not uh, kind of springs to mind. But some of the newer entrants into the consolidation or the acquisition space, I think they may, they may fare worse than others because if you have momentum and if you have a maturity in your business, then clearly those are things that allow you to ride out um bumps and troughs more easily so uh, kind of uh, aligned to what paul was saying um the newer entrants may really suffer so the impression i get is that um the consolidators are the sort of really investment led somebody has seen somebody's looked at the financial advice market and they've said ah oh, there's an opportunity to make a bit of money here by consolidating a lot of firms together might come out the other side of this thinking that you know what the flame's not worth the candle i'm out of here and they might you know they might they might leave is that um 
Um, Paul, is that do you think that's a reasonable assessment of what you think? Yeah, happen? I do. I, I do, and I, actually, funnily enough, I think um, <laughs> to use your analogy, I think there are a few candles uh, already burning a little less brightly than uh, than before, even before we entered into this period. Because obviously, if you're if you're a, a volume acquirer, or even if you're just a small acquirer, and you're not able to grow your underlying profitability by what you're buying then it soon becomes quite apparent to a seller by asking only one question, which is, uh, can you introduce me to the people you've bought hitherto so I can check what they, they feel about being bought by you? Now, whether that's about what's asked of them in integration or whether it's about what the overall client or staff experience is for good or for ill, or probably at a more raw level, did you deliver on all the economic promises of deferred consideration you yeah. committed to? And there was already quite a lot of creaking going on in some acquirers in the market around that last point. And that, that I think is the biggest warning signal. If it was poor and, and iffy, if you like before, then my word, it will be even more of an issue now. And, you know, I've been approached by a few sellers to other businesses who have asked if, uh, if there's a way they can, you know, we could talk to them about how they may reverse out and come back into a different conversation with us because they're finding some of those things to be true. That's not an easy place to have a conversation, but I think I just I use it as an example of I think those issues were probably coming home to roost anyway, and this is just going to bring some of it more into sharp relief. Yeah, uh, mm -hmm. on that very subject, uh, again, Paul made a very interesting point. Um, consolidation is a fairly, you know, it, it, it's a it's a wide ranging term that um, we actually don't use in relation to ourselves i think true consolidators as, as paul uh, intimated towards you know those that are just a role of exercise you you really will see the fractures in that kind of model during um times of turbulent trading uh, uh, buying businesses you know let's be honest buying businesses is really easy it's really easy it's a function of uh, establishing a price and a deal structure uh, and a suite of legal agreements and some due diligence. And if you're well-versed in doing it, it's like falling off a log. The hard part is creating one business out of a collection of acquisitions. Uh, the hard part is integrating. You know, it, it's never easy because integration is change. Um, driving systematic organic growth is difficult. Um, creating a cohesive single business out of a series of acquisitions, it, it is hard. And that's why you really have to work at those things. Buying businesses is really easy. And if that is the model that some people out there are following, they're not really bringing together those entities in, in a meaningful way. And I think the joins will then start to show that very much more clearly as we go through uh, a difficult, uh, potentially difficult trading period. So going back to my previous answer, it, it very much does depend upon the model, but the people that will feel the, the brunt of the pain, I think newer entrants and those that aren't really trying to create a business, they're just trying to create um, a composite P&L uh, that looks very good, but actually when you pull it apart, is there one business that sits underneath it? In, in some instances, not. Those will be, I think, the, the organisations that suffer the most. Well, thank you, Lee, for that insight. And thank you, Paul, also for your uh, insight into this issue as well. Uh, and thank you very much for tuning in. 
and we hope you do so again soon. Thank you very much and goodbye. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Here at Bellingcat, we get to the bottom of things. From a global crisis to an underreported event, we find the facts using publicly available tools and resources, uncovering what is hidden on and below the surface. We connect the dots using social media posts, satellite images, and public records, and empower others to do the same by sharing how we do it. The ability to do so is only made possible by our readers, supporters, and community members. Care to join us? Learn how at bellincat.com.